This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. Australians are struggling to keep a roof over their heads. House prices have skyrocketed, keeping a vast number of Australians locked out of the housing market. For those who can't afford to own a home, renting is no more attainable. The cost of renting a house has soared in Australia's capital cities and around the country, leaving renters with little to no options. Families, single parents and many others have turned to the few options that remain. They've moved into caravan parks and campgrounds, while little is being done to meet their housing needs. Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Live News Editor Patrick Keneally about a critical moment in the housing crisis. It's Friday, the 1st of July. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Patrick. Morning, Gabs. So there have been quite a lot of stories about the rental crisis going around this week and in the past few weeks, Lenore. Which ones have really captured your attention? Yeah, they're kind of everywhere. There was one last weekend that Jordan Beasley wrote about 50 or so people who are living in the Maruya campground where there's no power, where there's one cold shower. And she interviewed a bloke called Jeff who had sold his motorbike to buy a van had a solar panel on it, which was enough to charge his phone and have one hour of light a day. He works full-time as an assistant at the local school, but the wages are insufficient to rent anything in the area, which is where his family is and where he needs to live. And caravan park owners around the country are saying that they have calls from people like that all the time. You know, workers who cannot afford to rent any kind of house or home. And I just think it's quite extraordinary. There are a bunch of other stories as well. But yeah, that was the one that really stuck in my mind. There's a story we're working on this week, actually, about people camping out in the showgrounds in Hobart. Again, similar situation. These are working people who are just struggling to get affordable rental accommodation. And it's particularly acute in Hobart because they've had a lot of people move there during the pandemic. They don't have a lot of housing stock to start with. Wages are low. They've had a a massive boom in property prices. And as far as public housing is concerned, forget about it. There's a 10-year waiting list. So there's just very few options for these people. They end up living in cars and camping in the middle of a Tasmanian winter in Hobart. I remember seeing a Four Corners episode about 10 years ago about working people in America who couldn't afford a house and thinking, shocking. so what's happened in Australia? Well, I mean, before we go on to what's happened in Australia, there's been other stories that also look at the sorts of rentals that people are are Mm. resorting to, like a landlord in Melbourne who's offering single pod capsules. So like those ones in Japan where it just fits, you can just lie down on a single mattress in a pod stacked on other pods for $250 a week or $900 a month, and they're all full. And as he says, well, it's clean. You know, there's a housekeeper and people can afford to live there. I guess it beats camping or a North Adelaide property that was advertised for uh, about $400 a week, which had the toilet and the shower in a glass cubicle in the kitchen. Like just horrible. 
So how did we get here? This is not something that's happened overnight. It's the product of decades of underinvestment in public housing, which has squeezed tenants out since, you know, over the last 10 years, there's been very little investment in public housing. We've also had a massive increase in house prices, which has squeezed everyone. Since before the pandemic, house prices have increased around 20%. There's also been you know, decades of tax treatment, which has advantaged investors and speculation on housing where it's been treated uh, beneficially in tax, which has made it a very kind of lucrative and interesting place for investors to go. There's a lot of other causes, which I'm sure Lenore can talk to, but they're the ones that come to Mm. mind. And just Australia affordability, like rents are going up 9, 10, 12% across Australia and, and cost of living generally is going up. People's wages are not going up by anything like that. The rent assistance that low-income earners and uh, welfare beneficiaries can get has risen by a maximum of about 4% over the past two years. So just basically it's becoming less and less affordable for people on low incomes to rent anywhere. Another factor in it is the short-term rental market, the Airbnb factor. We had a reporter, Elias Basante, who wrote about Kangaroo Valley, where there was just one single listing for a long-term residential lease, but 76 homes on Airbnb or stays or other platforms. So, you know, there's a lot of vacant houses and people have always had holiday houses, but now it's a business, it's a money-making enterprise for people to buy an investment property and Airbnb it. It's a verb. And I guess that means that across our housing stock, there's houses that are accumulating wealth for some people while other people don't have anywhere to live. And I do wonder also whether there's something to the post-pandemic effect because it was a bit of a conundrum. How come if our borders are closed and the population isn't increasing, how come rentals are so hard to find? And I think it's probably a combination of all of those things. Yeah, it was interesting in the 2021 census, which came out this week, that we did see those uh, trends amplified. So people have been wanting to move out of the cities into regional areas, and that we know that's where the crisis is at its most acute. Also, people have wanted to move out of share houses into their own properties. And these are long-term trends, but they've been really kind of amplified uh, by by the pandemic. Was who would want to work from home at a kitchen table with your five housemates? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But basically, when you boil it all down, we aren't building or providing enough affordable and social housing. I mean, that's that's something that has been brewing, has been happening for a long time, a decade or more, and now it's kind of crunch time. We ran a story this week reporting that in 2021, just under 30,000 applicants were granted a social housing tenancy compared to 52,000 in 1991. So that's like a 42% reduction, or if you adjust it for population, a 61% reduction you know, the number of social housing properties are not increasing and the number of people who need them are increasing and that's the problem. So Labor did have a social housing policy, Patrick, when they, at the election. What was it and is it adequate? So Labor had what I guess you could class as a reasonably ambitious social housing policy. It provided a kind of top-line figure of $10 billion to improve the number of social housing, which they said would build around 20,000 social housing dwellings in the first five years and 10,000 affordable housing dwellings. But really, some critics have called it a kind of frill neck lizard type of policy where it looks a lot bigger than it actually is. $10 billion is a big number, but that 
$10 billion is going to be invested and then they will spend the dividends of that investment on public housing. The waiting list in New South Wales is around 50,000. The waiting list in Victoria is around 50,000 as well. So really when you're looking at that kind of pent-up demand and the need for housing, 20,000 social housing dwellings in the next five years is not even going to make a dent, touch the sides. Um, The Greens have a more ambitious policy. They've said they want to build 1 million houses over 20 years, which would be 50,000 per year. But that's an incredibly ambitious number. Even the height of the UK's social housing building program in the 1960s, they were building sort of around about 100,000 or 150,000 a year, equivalent for our population size. So to get to those levels, it would, you know, you'd have to set up an MBN-style co. And the waiting list can be a bit misleading as well because to have any chance at all of getting a social housing house, you have to be on the priority waiting list, which means you have to have complex needs, no chance at all of ever renting privately. So most people on the waiting list, they're never going to get a house, like never. So lots of people just drop off. So I think the waiting list probably understate the level of need, which just goes to the point Pat was making. Are the states doing anything? Yeah, a bit, because it's one of those complicated areas where the responsibility is shared between mm. the federal government and the state government. So, you know, it's it's complicated to deal with. New South Wales is making a little bit of progress. There was a small net increase in housing stock in New South Wales last year. Victoria is really building, has quite an ambitious plan to build more social housing, but, you know, their waiting list had really ballooned. So they're coming, starting from a long, long way behind. Some states and municipalities are acting on the short-term rental issue as well. So Brisbane in their latest city council budget actually increased by 50% the rates on short-term accommodation to try to force people to put their investment properties back on the long-term rental market rather than Airbnb them or on whatever platform because Brisbane's rental vacancy rate was 0.7%. Oh, my God. So, yeah, I mean, people are trying to do things, but I guess it's this massive uh, situation of catch-up because the situation is just so, so dire. The point I would make is states are doing a lot of the heavy lifting on providing social housing, but it's always been an area where the federal government has been involved and where we've made big gains in the past is where the federal government has been very involved. So under Whitlam in the 1970s, the federal government got very involved in social housing provision. In the post-war era, governments were again involved in trying to build housing for returned soldiers and um, and trying to deal with some of the crises that we've seen in the past. So I don't think it's an area where you can just leave it to the states. Mm-hmm. It is an area where federal government involvement yeah, is critical. I agree. To be fair to Labor, there's the social and affordable housing commitment. They're also going to revamp the National Housing Supply and Investment Corporation, which has a much broader remit. It's looking at the whole idea of housing supply. So it it's a, it was set up under the former government. Its aim is also to try and speed up, you know, new housing developments, like to increase housing supply. But one of the things it does is provide long-term low-cost financing to community groups like community providers of social and affordable housing to build more or maintain social housing stock. If you channeled more money into that through the community providers, maybe that's another way that the stock could be more fit for purpose. But yeah, it's a massive, massive exercise in catch up. 
And it seems like New South Wales has had some success in sort of partnering with non-government organisations mm. to increase the stock of housing. The government in New South Wales has been heavily criticised for their provision of social housing, but they have had some successes with reducing the waiting list, mm. with partnering with NGOs to, to get more dwellings built. Obviously, it's an important issue for Anthony Albanese. One of the most moving parts of the campaign was when he talked about growing up in social housing mm. with a disabled mum. Do we know what a child in Anthony Albanese's situation today, how they would fare, how that family would fare? Well, we asked the inequality editor, Luke Enrique Gomes, to go and look for a single mum similar to Marianne Albanese and see what the situation was like now. And he interviewed a mum of two who had waited for four years for access to public housing. And as we've said, lots of people wait for a lot longer than that. So I think, you know, on any objective assessment, Albo and his mum would have a very long wait for housing now if they were able to get it at all. The situation has become, you know, I mean, they had a tough time, but the situation has become much tougher since then. But even there are large changes in the the type of social housing that's provided. So Anthony Albanese grew up in Camperdown in a public housing unit. He was right around the corner from where he went to university, a short walk up to the University of Sydney, where he studied uh, economics. Now the New South Wales government has been selling off a lot of its inner city portfolio of social housing and moving it out to Western Sydney, where there's fewer jobs um, and fewer opportunities for social progression, I would say, in a lot of areas. So... Lenore, you've talked on this podcast before, actually, how difficult it has been to get the rental crisis on the agenda. Have we made inroads, though? Look, I think it is being talked about more because it is so obvious a crisis and people are seeing it in their daily lives. And I think it's something that governments know that they have to address. It's really come to a crisis point. It's hard, though. It's not a policy where there's an easy fix. It's complicated. It's expensive. It's responsibility shared between Commonwealth and state governments. It's not just uh, the Commonwealth builds the houses themselves and has complete control. They're either working through community housing providers or I've actually seen suggestions from some experts that we need to provide incentives for private investors to get involved in investing in public housing, which is exactly what the Rudd government did. And then Tony Abbott closed it down. And you know, what the Rudd government did was it was like a 10-year scheme. So people, private investors went into public housing building and the people who rented their houses got a guaranteed level of rent for 10 years. And part of the crisis now is it's getting towards the end of those 10 years and the the grandfathering of that scheme is coming to fruit and, the, and it's being closed down. So, you know, we're kind of, one of the solutions that's being put forward is something that was tried and and shut down. I think the council that the federal government's setting up really needs to look at innovative solutions because we need to do a lot. It's not a quick fix. It's not an easy fix. It's quite a complicated problem, but it's just really reached crunch point. I'd say one of the other reasons we're talking about it right now is a few things to do with the climate and the weather. So we had um, massive floods in northern New South Wales. It destroyed hundreds of houses, um, left people homeless. Um, and there's still people. Fires. Yeah, fires. There's still people living in pods in, in caravans and all types of temporary accommodation in the north coast. The south coast as well, you know, after the fires there, all around Australia, we're seeing similar problems. Also, we've had the coldest winter in 30 years and, um, you know, rain. And so it really has drawn it into kind of stark relief and, and given people a really good insight into the struggles that some people have finding safe and secure accommodation. 
but it's sort of in the end comes down to priorities, right? Like the government saying, well, we can't afford to put up unemployment benefits any further, even though they're below the poverty line. But unemployment benefits and the meagre rental assistance is not enough to rent a property in any city anywhere. So something has to give. Mm. And I mean, it really does come down to the new government's priorities. Next, Trump shocks again and ABC nostalgia. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. What's stuck in your mind this week, Lenore? The uh, congressional hearing into the January 6th riot at the US Capitol and particularly the evidence given by a woman called Cassidy Hutchinson, who was an aide to the then White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows. One of the things she said was how Trump was upset that the um, Secret Service and the authorities were using metal detectors for people entering his rally to take their weapons away. And he wanted the metal detectors taken down so people could get in. And that was even after there were official reports that people were carrying AR-15s on that day and other weapons. You know, AR-15s are semi-automatic rifles. And what she said was that the people were not there to hurt him. They're not here to hurt me. Take the metal detectors away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. I just find that I thought he couldn't shock me, but it shocked me. Yeah, I was the same as you. I kind of couldn't look away. Patrick, what could you not get out of your head this week? For me, it was the ABC's 90th birthday celebrations, which are occurring this week. Mm. And I think part of the reason I can't get it out of my head is because... Can't miss it. Can't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> We're reminded of it every day on the ABC. So um, we put together a piece talking to Guardian staff about their recollections of growing up with the ABC. It's a, it's one thing, I think, which brings us together as Australians. We all have yeah. this national broadcaster, which we love and which um, provides the kind of soundtrack and background to our lives in many ways. For me, growing up it was um coming home from school and watching monkey magic and doctor who with my brothers and sisters and um you know for a lot of people different generations have different experiences with the abc that was mine in the 80s um i was talking to my mum about it the other day um who said that in the 1950s there was a radio drama called blue hills which was on um every day at midday and everybody would just stop and and listen to blue hills and did it go for like (laughs) 20 it went for, years yeah, or something. Yeah, and then I think they replayed it again in the 90s and, yeah. So, Amazing. Um, what was it for you, Gabs? Uh, I think my favourite part was Triple J when Helen Razor and Mikey Robbins were on in the mornings and it was kind of like whenever I hear their voices, I'm just like in my best uni days. You know, that's how I yeah. woke up when I was at uni and it just reminds me of how much fun those, those days were. Yeah, for me it was lying on the carpet watching Countdown when I was at oh, primary yeah. school because it was so kind of cool and a life that I wasn't leading yet. Yeah, and rage on uh, Sunday mornings <laughs> as well. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannan. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. I hope you have a lovely weekend and Jane Lee will be back with you on Monday. We'll see you then. <laughs> <laughs>